You can't stop it now. It's already going. No, stop. Hi guys, this is Kendra. You're listening to Nocturnal Distraction. I have a co-host here tonight. <laughs> she is very excited to be here with us. Oh, I had to bribe her a little bit. She's like a she's like a mini version of myself, if that gives you guys any clue whatsoever as to who <clears throat> it might be. And she has slightly more attitude and dysfunction. It's my daughter, by the way. Dysfunction? Mia, say hi. Hi. <laughs> I told her she cannot stay quiet either. I said, you have to stay quiet for the first 12 seconds of the recording. What does she do? Starts laughing and mouthing things. To her. I'm like, 12 seconds. 12 seconds. <laughs> 12. And now you probably won't talk like the rest of the time. No. Okay. Well, everyone, I'm back again. It's been like a month since I have recorded anything. So those of you who are still sticking around, I appreciate it. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. So we're going to catch up on some house cleaning, first of all, here. Uh, first, I have no clue where I'm at play-wise or country or state-wise. As far as how many states have been listening, what countries are listening. So... I'll have to try to figure that out. Second, um, I have now switched to being a solo show, other than when I have a guest co-host, uh, in case you didn't catch the last update that I did. Bear with me. It's going to be weird when I'm here alone talking to myself. That'll be fun. You can laugh, Mia. It's okay. <laughs> It'll be like I'm talking to myself. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting. Uh, third... This is a huge, ginormous shout out to Katie and Emily from Malice and Mockales because they are super amazeballs and they gave me donations through Buy Me a Coffee and bought me 33 coffees at $3 um, each. So you guys can do the math there. That's amazing. You two are beautiful and I love you. And thanks to them, I have ordered new stickos. Stickos. Stickos stickers with the new logo on it and they are glow in the dark so they're gonna be pretty freaking awesome i hope and they should be here pretty soon fourth another shout out to marianne from crime scene and cupcakes because she made a fantastic cupcake for this podcast i have it posted on the instagram if you want to go look at it it's waffles Waffle. it's a waffle cupcake gluten-free which is fantastic <laughs> because my mom and my boyfriend both have celiac, so the fact that she could make it gluten-free and have it be waffles and a cupcake. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Um, fifth, this is actually a start of season two, and it's going to be a series, uh, not a multi-parter, just to be clear on that point already. Uh, I've been telling people to consider it more like a CSI or Bones TV show where there's that background story, but if you miss like an episode or two, you won't be totally lost if you jump in in the middle of it. So I'm hoping that way it'll keep you interested. But at the same time, I know some people with multi-parters, they lose interest. Like, for example, with my Mary Beth Tanine five-parter. That's not happening again. Um, some end-of-the-year fun stuff about the podcast. So between the beginning of June when this started and the end of the year, so about seven months, uh, 
created about 1,900 minutes of content, apparently, which is 94% more than other creators in the true crime category. We've been listened to in nine countries, top five being the United States, the UK, New Zealand, shout out to you, Miss New Zealand, Canada, and Portugal. Podcast was in the top 10% most shared globally and in the top 30% of the most followed. The listeners of this podcast are deemed to be adventurers in personality, which means that you guys like to venture into the unknown and search for fresher podcasts and gems yet to be found. And that right there is a shout out to you, Amber, from That's Not Good, because you randomly found us one time. And we are also in the top 10, like, so for fans, we're in the top 10 podcasts for 22 of our fans, the top five for 10 and we are the number one podcast for seven of our fans and subscribe. So I know we have fans out there, obviously. So send us some messages. Send me messages. Like I keep saying, uh, send messages. Let us know. Me know. I got to change that. What you guys want to hear, what I'm doing good, what I'm not doing good. I want to hear from you. Please go to Instagram. Send a message. Send an email. Whatever. I would appreciate it. So, season two, what are we doing for this series that I've been talking about, right? We are doing this fun thing that I found when I was researching. And it is a forensic psychologist um, by the name of Dr. Michael Stone, who has created something called the 22-level gradation. Why can I not remember what the heck? Oh, yeah had this in my head and I forgot. It's a 22 level gradations of evil scale. So it's basically you can call this. I'm trying to clear my throat. And so basically it is a way to determine what evil is worse than another evil and how to deal with that evil. You're going to be hearing me word use the word evil a lot in this episode today. <laughs> You guys are drinkers out there. This would be a great drinking game. Take a shot for every time I say evil. No, please don't. You'll die of alcohol poisoning. Um, so that is what this, that's what the main basis is. So today in this episode, what I'm basically going to be covering then is how this scale came to be developed, how he developed it, how that process went, what it can be used for, and then what each level is within that scale after that point so each episode following this i will be covering a case that goes along with each category or level of the scale so category one category two category you know all the way through category level 22 basically i thought it was an interesting concept it really intrigued me and it has a lot to do with not only the actual Act or the actual murder that happened, but it takes into consideration the psychology and the perpetrator and how they grew up and what, what their lives were like, and taking that into consideration when dishing out punishment, so to speak, which I've always been interested in because I think that plays a lot into it. It also goes into the whole answer in the question of why. Why do things happen? Why do these people do these things? What causes somebody to do these things? Which I think all of us kind of are searching for in this stuff with true crime a lot of the time. At least I know a lot of people, that's what 
they start being interested in true crime for it's like that answer of why because we can't fathom it we can't process it in our minds why people do what they do when it's something absolutely horrendous so let us begin and i have my daughter here too because some of this i'm hoping i've made it clear just because it's yeah it's a lot of information and so i figure if she can understand it anybody can understand it Wow. <laughs> no, she's very smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's glaring at me right now. Uh, most of the information that I am giving to you guys tonight comes from the book, The Anatomy of Evil, which was actually wrote by Dr. Michael Stone, talking about this, this scale and a couple of different websites, but it'll all be listed down in the show notes, but a lot of it is from that book. And this is just like the very beginning of the book before he starts getting into like each category. So the first hurdle though, that he had to kind of clear was like defining what evil actually is, because we all have this preconceived notion based on our own life experiences and opinions on what we ourselves define as evil. But like many other words we use, such as normal or good, it's different. Because when somebody says, Oh, I want to be normal. Well, what's normal? It varies between people. So who, if anyone, is qualified to actually define evil? And to answer this, we have to acknowledge like the role that religion obviously has played in the shaping of many people's ideas about evil and what evil is. Many insist that discussion of the subject is legitimate only when put forward either by religious leaders, like clergy or professors of theology, or else by philosophers themselves who were kind of seen as being very wise and had that ability. Contemporary philosopher Susan Niemann, I forgot to look that up, Niemann, I think it's Niemann, does not think of a fundamental proper does not think a fundamental property of evil can be defined, though she adds that to call something evil is a way of stating the fact that it shatters our trust in the world. So she thinks, you know, or she, it's her opinion that when you call something evil, it, it kind of destroys what you thought might or could happen in the world. Your trust in the world, like the fact that that would never happen. And then it happens and you lose your trust. That's evil. Or that's one definition. That's her opinion. Um, she also distinguishes the difference between natural and moral evils. Because in the past, think like back in biblical times before modern times, natural events such as earthquakes and tornadoes were seen as natural evils and they were thought to be brought upon us due to our own sins. However, most people today in modern society no longer believe the natural disasters are due to our own sins, so therefore are not considered evil other than in like a figurative sense. Moral evils, however, are those that we ourselves initiate by our own decisions and actions. So we're going to be basically, we're obviously going to be sticking to the moral evils, the evils that people themselves decide to do in their actions. When discussing the gradations of evil scale, Dr. Stone is referring to the evil acts for which people alone are responsible for. Moral evils. So back to the task at hand defining evil in order to both define and describe evil according to stone 
would require a universal agreement among goodwill philosophers, theologians, medical legal experts, and ordinary people. So basically a universal agreement among everyone in the world. But that's not possible, so that's not going to happen. Um, so basically, it would have to be the world as a whole would have to agree on what characteristics and what the extreme circumstances might be to make something evil. But if anyone knows anything about the world, what is evil in one society might not be considered evil in another society. And so therefore, a universal agreement on what evil is, is not going to happen. So what do we do there? This, um, logically, as most would agree, is not possible. For example, you would like to think that the death camps of Auschwitz or one of the other 20th century genocides would earn this kind of universal agreement, but there still remain groups of people here and there who think differently. There are still groups of people out there who think the Holocaust was a hoax and therefore would not consider it evil because they don't think it happened. So we can't come to a universal agreement on that. The closest we may ever get to a near universal agreement would be about the opposite ends. The somewhat bad, which is like slapping one's child. I would consider that more than somewhat bad, but anyway. And the extremity of evil, like murder. But there will always be that gray zone in the middle. That fuzzy area where the opinion is far from universal. Let's use for another example, the rape and murder of a child. For most of us, for 99% of us in the world, that would be an example of absolute evil. You agree? You can't say yes. <laughs> she is nodding her head. Yes. We would agree that that is absolute evil. However, you do have that 1% that would not agree. They would not consider it to be absolute evil. And while, of course, in my opinion, such a thing is for sure evil when it comes to defining evil and having it a universal definition, this can't be used as an example. You listening? Yeah. No, she's recording my dog right now. You sleeping? <laughs> she always sleeps. So we've already decided that we're not going to come to a universal definition of evil that is going to fit for the entire world, right? So there was a lot of information in the first page of notes that I have. And I'm probably, hopefully, uh, not hopefully confusing you. I'm probably merely confusing you. But there is a point to all this. So please hang in here with me. Because I understand trying to define evil seems to be pointless. As we cannot seem to define evil in a useful way or even establish a meaningful ranking or scale of evil acts. But before I share with you the working definition of evil that Dr. Stone actually uses and his approach to measuring evil, we do need to discuss about discuss a bit about what it means to make judgments of this sort as far as what is evil in the first place. Like, who has the right to decide what's evil and what's not? Some people feel strongly that no one has the right to make judgments about evil. Religious people in particular hold to the view that God is the final, perhaps the only rightful judge of such decisions. However, they are willing to make compromises, allowing for clergymen to make such judgments. Philosophers, because of their wisdom, have also been privileged in this regard. However, even so, 
while they may define evil similarly, they talk of it in generalities and not specifics. It is rare for either of these trusted leaders to speak of like actual cases that have happened. So we still have the question of what makes one evil more or less evil than another. It just started sleeping here, here on the windows. Yeah. Um, and so basically it's like, yeah, those types of leaders can say something is evil, but they don't get down to specifics and what would be considered more evil than another act, which is really what we're trying to get into here. So when faced with religious directions and the moral constraints against making our own judgments about evil, the question Dr. Stone had to ask himself was what he, as a psychiatrist, should do and where he should turn in order to find some sort of answer to the question of what evil actually is. I should have counted how many times he said evil. A lot. A lot. Um, so Dr. Stone actually believes that this answer can be found by turning to the public itself. So the public within a certain society. So I, it would kind of change depending upon where you are. People living everyday life. Also, authors who write about true crime, journalists, and commentators in the media. They all use the word evil frequently and freely in describing certain acts of violent crime, and at times, the perpetrators of these crimes. And in the cases of violent crimes and extreme depraved, of extreme depraved nature, even clergymen, philosophers, judges, attorneys, psychiatrists, and other physicians when they react as a private citizen, so when they're in their homes and not in like a professional sense, they think about it in their own heads and they often react the same way as an average person. They speak of evil in the same sense as everyone else and do so often. It is on this general usage that Stone bases his own impressions about evil. So basically he's saying we're defining evil by looking to what the public defines as evil when, when they use the word evil. And we're not going by just religious leaders. We're going by you know, people who write about it, journalists, and how people who are in the clergy or psychiatrists would react to a certain crime while they're at home. They would react the same way as most people, say that's evil. So... He also uses a quote that says, if three people call you a horse, buy a saddle. You know, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's a duck. Type of a situation. You never heard if you ever heard that? Really? No. No. So, so, <laughs> so if a judge, journalist, and the public agreed that a particular crime was evil, well then it was evil, for that establishes the meaning of evil down here on earth within a particular society and culture. This, in turn, is the approach he will rely on in his discussion of evil. This makes the fashioning of a scale for defining the differences between evils by using community-based definitions at least a reasonable undertaking and one that is worthy of scientific inquiry and research. So the following is a quote from Stone, directly from his book, and I feel like it's important to read it word for word, and that's why I'm doing the whole quote. So he says, quote, And we would like to think that whenever we use the word in our culture and in our day, it applies to those who are 
really evil and who would be properly labeled so for the rest of eternity. There should never be a time, for example, when child rape, serial killing, torture, wife bashing, and the like become acceptable. This is an understandable hope. Given the history of the world, however, I do not think it is a reasonable hope. End quote. So while that stuff should be considered evil, some countries it's still legal to stone your wife to death. So there's that. The public in modern day often uses the word evil when describing certain acts done by those who intentionally hurt or kill others in, a, in an excruciatingly painful way. That pain might be physical or it might be emotional or mental, such as extreme humiliation. The perpetrator must have a knowledge of death and the awareness that his or her action might bring about the death of the victim. Another requirement for using the term evil is that the perpetrator be aware that the victim suffered greatly and experienced agony. The same as the perpetrator would feel if the tables were turned and he were the victim of those same actions. So, in order for us to consider an act that a perpetrator does to be evil, that perpetrator has to be aware that what he is doing is indeed evil and would cause them the same amount of pain as they are causing somebody else. And that's when we get into that whole, like, the act is evil, person's evil, evil. And most of the time, the public would completely agree with that. Another thing to take into consideration when labeling an action or even a person as evil is that normally humans have an ingrained sense of shame, which acts, as he says, like a breaking mechanism, stopping us from committing the horrible crimes of violence and murder. However, for some people who commit evil acts, while they do have a sense of shame, in certain dire circumstances, the sense of shame seems to go temporarily offline, like a computer, and they commit these crimes. In others who commit these acts, the sense of shame was never properly developed to begin with. So some of them have, some of us have that built-in break mechanism, and that stops us from just like pummeling someone to death <laughs> when we're mad at them. You know, it, it prevents us from doing that because we know it's wrong. And other people, and they're in a dire situation where that just goes offline and they're not even thinking properly, and they just impulsively do it and then there's others who literally never have that sense they don't even have that that their brakes are gone they are cut they're shot they were never put in the car <laughs> and i would assume or hope that most of you listening to this right now have that breaking mechanism that will prevent you <laughs> from just killing anyone i hope Sometimes I wonder. No, not really. So that's that. And those are all things that are taken into consideration and these gradations of evil, too. So what the heck does all that mumbo-jumbo I just filled your ear holes with actually mean? As far as the definition of evil. In layman's terms, Dr. Stone explains it as the following way. Evil is a word that is applied to situations or acts that have the effect of horrifying or shocking whoever witnesses these acts or hears about them. 
Most often, the term evil is also used when talking about the act that was committed and not the person who is guilty of the act. So we don't always say the person is evil. Sometimes we just say the act itself is evil. Evil is reserved for such acts that are astonishingly awful because the degree of violence, suffering, or humiliation imposed greatly exceeds what would be normally needed to express one's irritation or resentment or to subdue the victim. So, that means basically, um, if you're upset with somebody, there's certain ways to go about expressing that uh, being upset, expressing your anger. Evil is reserved for an act that is taken out on another person that goes beyond being able to just explain why you're angry. For example, a husband who beats the crap out of his wife because he's angry. That is going above and beyond explaining his anger. Or subduing the victim. Like, okay, they're already out to do something bad to this person, but they subdue that victim in a way that is considered evil. Like, more painful than is necessary. Okay, like, this is going to sound horrible again. While they could just chloroform them and knock them out, instead they bash them over the head with an iron bar. That goes above and beyond what's needed to actually subdue them. To kill them? Not necessarily kill them, but just to knock them out. Most like they do something that's like... Worse than this. Yeah. So it hurts them more than they need to. Mm -hmm. So that's that. So the element of excess is crucial to the use of the word evil. The root meaning of the word evil actually means over or beyond. So to be categorized as evil, there must be a glaring deviation from the standards of acceptable behavior within a community or a particular culture and time period. So like I said, depending upon where you're at, what culture you're in, it could vary. The deviation must be over and beyond what ordinary people in that community could even envision as something another human being could ever do. You know, like um, something like skinning your boyfriend because he won't marry you, as in the case of Catherine Knight. And that's an actual thing. Or other such cases that I don't believe I need to give examples of to anyone who is listening as this is a true crime podcast, but that was just one. That was above and beyond. And it is so far out there that anybody who in that normal community can't fathom that happening. Like, you can't wrap your brain around it. And she did did a really good job of skinning him, too. Like, all in one piece. Yeah. (laughs) She was a butcher. Like, so, like, literally, like, it was a skin rug. It was a human skin rug, basically. That is just I think I listened to one podcast where they actually said she did such a good job of it that when they buried him, they were able to put the skin back on him around his body. That is so bad. It's bad, but, again, it's hard to wrap your head around. That's evil. Because mm-hmm. it goes, like, way beyond what we think one person could do to another person. Yeah. I liked your face, though, when I said that. <laughs> You're like, what? Yeah. So, usually, not always, though, evil acts are 
preceded by intention or premeditation. So they think about it beforehand. Um, soon after learning about such situations, the public will generally know more about the details of the evil act before they know anything about the person responsible for the act. And as far as the perpetrators go, the more clearly sane they are in the legal sense, that is. So they know right from wrong as opposed to like legally insane where they are out of touch with reality and they don't even know what they did was wrong. And so the more sane they appear, the more easily society will come to the conclusion that they or their acts are indeed evil. So we already said, you know, that person is saying they knew what they were doing evil. If found later to be seriously mentally ill, we end up thinking that the act was evil, but the person themselves was not because they were in the throes of a psychotic break, for example. Um, there are also certain nonviolent acts that may also reach the level of excess and outrageousness that will call forth the response from people that acts were evil. And those will be cases that will be discussed later on in the series. I'm not going to get too much into that because they'll come up. So, what is the condensed version of all that I just said? It can be narrowed down to four criteria in order for an act to be evil. One, it must be astonishingly horrible. Two, malice afterthought or the intention will usually precede the act. Three, the degree of suffering inflicting, inflicted will be wildly excessive. And four, the nature of the act will appear incomprehensible, bewildering, and beyond the imagination of ordinary people in the community. So what he is saying is for, like, something to be considered evil, it should meet all four of those criteria. There will often be near universal agreement if the act involves the kidnapping and torture of a child. Nearly. Because remember, there's still that 1% that doesn't think that's a bad thing because they're pieces of shit. Um, <laughs> and certain crimes amounting to less than murder sometimes can be classified as more clearly evil than murder itself because of the suffering involved. And we'll get into that more too. Because there are certain levels in here where the acts committed, though it didn't lead up to murder, were so horrific that the suffering makes it more evil than an act that ended in murder. Um, keep in mind also that when a person is called evil and not just the action of the person, it is implied that the person is going to commit at the acts often and habitually. So when we call an actual person evil, we're implying that that act or action that they have taken is not a one-time thing. It means that they will continue to do it, as opposed to just saying the act was evil. Evil in everyday speech means something to the effect of, I feel a horror beyond my ability to understand and beyond my ability to put what I feel into words. Can't wrap your brain around it. You hear about it and you go, what? How? Why? What? So. Now that your brains are really full of evil <laughs> and what it means and how is society and community typically perceive and define it, what exactly made Dr. Stone decide 
that a scale with different levels of evil was needed. And how did he go about figuring it out? So we kind of have a definition of evil now as far as within a society goes. So why now did he decide a scale of this evil was needed? So 20 plus years ago, he said he was serving as an expert witness in a murder case and had the thought that it would be useful if he could get the jury to think of an imaginary line, so to speak, like a timeline, only with murders, and how different murders of varying degrees could be categorized, starting with ones that we as humans can understand, such as self-defense. We can understand why that happens. And ending with ones that the human mind has a hard time even comprehending. And this is the beginning of the scale that would one day be called the gradations of evil. He began to read full-length biographies about famous murderers, you know, the ones found in the true crime section of a bookstore and that we all like to find and read. <laughs> Sounds so terrible. Yeah. Because they generally gave a lot of background into the lives of the murderer. What was their childhood like? Did they use drugs? Was there mental health problems, etc.? And I know most of you have probably read at least one such book, and you know that you learn much more about the perpetrator than you would if you just relied on news articles or the internet. So Dr. Stone, while being, you know, he's a forensic psychologist and psychiatrist, he also specializes in disorders of personality. So he combed through each of these biographies for impressions and memories of these people who knew them or of people who knew the murderer, such as friends, relatives, but also lawyers, doctors, and if the person had been in prison before, jailers and other inmates who could give a picture of what that murderer had been like. So this is where he's starting to say, like, I'm not just looking at the act and what crime they committed. I'm also looking at this person as a person and what causes them to commit this act one day. And that plays into like the different levels. He also makes sure to pay close attention to whether the author of the book used the word evil in describing either the crime or the murderer. Was the word used in other accounts about the same killer in newspapers and magazines? And if so, was that the belief of the writer, of the police, the judge, the prosecutors, or of the relatives of the victims? Above all, what had happened that had brought the word evil to anyone's mind to begin with? Was it the manipulative way used to lure the victim? The callousness of the killer? The extreme suffering caused by or endured by the victim? So he's also looking to see how many times the word evil has been used and by what sources. And people, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. Got it. I should be recording this because you guys don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But she's like over here. Not near nails. What are you doing with your phone? Videoing the wax melt. Why are you videoing the wax melt? I go it's back. like literally watching paint dry. I want to go back and watch it in time lapse of it melting. <laughs> <I'm poor. laughs> Other people find this interesting. You should be listening so that way you can figure listening. out when people are evil. We'll get to it. Now I've lost my place. That's a lot. So, could he identify, in other words, divisions or gradations that made one type of a murder more evil 
than others in the opinion of authorities and the public. For example, if the information on one murderer only mentioned the word evil or heinous or depraved, etc., a few times, as opposed to them being used hundreds of times in reference to a different perpetrator, it would make logical sense that one would be more evil than the other. At that time in the creation of the scale, he did not feel there was enough differences in the acts that could be made along this imaginary line, but he thought perhaps he could be they could, he could categorize it into six different categories. Categories, starting one end with those who had killed in uh, self-defense or justified homicide and therefore not evil, and ending at the other end with, his example was the Moore's murders, which was the serial killing of children committed by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, which I'm sure any of you who listen to True Crime, you, you know which one I'm talking about there. And at the time, since this was 20 plus years ago, at the time, this is what he had considered the most evil and extreme murders. This has changed since then. We've seen worse, but at that time, it was the Moore's murders. There were not so many different natural divisions he could make along that line, um, but he felt they could be put into like a half a dozen categories. Show. For example, again, as dreadful as it would be to murder one's pregnant wife and two small children, the husband, if acting impulsively, and not subjecting his family to torture. It was evil, but less evil than the serial murders of children that had been committed by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Differences there. So his scale then had, at first, three different points. There was justified homicide, impulsive and unplanned, but no torture, and little, if any, evil and serial killers. But before showing this rudimentary scale to the jury, because remember, he was doing this whole thing because he was this expert witness on a murder trial. He also added a few more of these categories or points. One for jealousy murders, another for men and women who clearly had schemed with malice and aforethought, that is, with guilty mind and prior intention to kill someone they regarded as an obstacle to some important goal of their own. And an additional point for serial killers who, unlike Ian Brady and Myra Henley, did not engage in torture. So jealousy murders, the sort where someone surprises a spouse in bed with a lover and then kills the spouse or the lover or both, are the most understandable to the public and the most likely to earn a measure of sympathy, so to speak. The public understands and recognizes that the murder of any sort is wrong, but people reacting to such a story may also have a thought in their mind that they would do or feel like doing the same thing. So it can be considered the least evil or that the act was evil, but the person was not evil. Because how many times have all of us sat there and been like, I'm so upset or mad at that person, I could kill them. You got this smile on your face, you know you said it. <laughs> but, so when it comes to like things like finding your spouse in bed with somebody else and you kill them in the input, that passion, you know, you did the moment murder. The public understands that more. 
They know it's wrong, but they can understand it more. For a schemer driven by malice aforethought, so planning ahead of time, it would be like the case of a son or a daughter that kills their parent or parents in order to acquire an inheritance more quickly. But that's that one. And serial killers that do not engage in torture was added because he felt that one was needed needed to cover crimes people found more disturbing than the murder of one's mother for monetary gain, but less disturbing than a serial killer who tortured victims. So, at this stage, his scale had six points, or categories, which were justified homicide, not evil at all, jealousy-driven and other impulsive murders, murder to get someone out of the way without planning, Murder to get someone out of the way with planning. Serial murder, repetitive, vicious acts without torture. Serial murder with torture as the main goal. So that was his initial six categories. But he didn't stop there. He continued to read biographies. And after a few hundred biographies, so he's read a, he read a few hundred serial killer biographies. I'm not sure how he had the time. Takes me a while to go through one. But he quickly realized that many more points were needed on the gradation scale to take into account the variety of murders. And so the number of categories began to grow and eventually reaches the 22 that we will be talking about. So that's a happy thought, right? You no longer have to worry about just evil people in general. You now have to worry about 22 different variations of evil people. Yay! And this just covers the murderers. This doesn't even cover the other people. <laughs> he is also sure to say at this point that the number he has developed is his own opinion and someone else reading the same books may have had fewer or more categories. So keep in mind too, I mean, yes, this is based on his own opinions, but he is also a renowned forensic psychologist, psychiatrist, etc. He's not just some random person. To the present day, he still encounters now and then persons who don't fit neatly into the original categories, which really, I mean, it makes sense. I don't think anyone ever fits neatly into any kind of categorized box. For example, some have committed shocking acts of violence, but were obviously mentally ill, so much so that they were scarcely aware of and not legally responsible for what they had done. And by mentally ill, he refers to people who suffer from a psychiatric condition, often called a psychosis, that grossly impairs their sense of reality. So when you are suffering from psychosis or a psychotic break, it's a break from reality. You don't even understand that what is happening is not or is reality, like cutting someone's head off, but you thinking that they're the devil and that's the only way to save the world. They're not in touch with reality. They're not legally responsible. Um, other cases that don't fit neatly into the things are, it says men, and mainly it is men, not at all mentally ill. So these are people that, not, that are not mentally ill at all, but have made lifelong careers of torture murders. These went beyond even the extreme number 22, but for simplicity, though they are grouped with 22, 
He does acknowledge that some are seen as more evil than others. They're similar in type, but different in intensity. But let's face it, you could go up to like 300 different levels if you were going to do that. And he didn't want to go that far. Torture murderers, basically serial killers, who are sexually stirred up by inflicting torture are almost never mentally ill, meaning they are not delusional, do not hear voices, nor do they show any other signs of a radical departure from reality. In large part, though, the public does not readily grasp this distinction, assuming instead that anyone acting in such a way must be crazy. And I know that I've had those thoughts many times about most serial killers or murderers, thinking that there, there has to be something mentally wrong with them for them to be even able to commit the act of murder. Because no sane person would take another person's life in cold blood. Right? And I think that that's the general public's thing. Like, anybody who does that has to be insane to some level. But it's not true. I have to remind myself that while they might have a few screws loose, they are not technically considered to be insane, according to the law, if they have an understanding that what they did was wrong and were aware of what they were doing was wrong while committing the act and continued to commit the act anyway. They were in touch. So I still have a hard time wrapping my head around it, but that's the way it is. So we have it now defined as closely as possible what the definition of evil is, why Dr. Stone began the gradations of evil scale, the first six categories he developed, and his realization the six were not enough, and he needed to make it 22, and we move on. Next is why, after the original murder case that he had created the original scale for, why did he keep digging into the subject? He could have stopped there, but he kept going. One of his goals when creating the scale was to fine-tune the degree of evil, which meant taking into consideration not only the quality of the act and degree of suffering it imposed, but also the nature of the offender. So it's not only what they did, but also who they are. He regards these nuances as important in creating such a scale. Stick with me here, everybody. The closer the public's reaction approaches the same when it comes to evil, the less subjectivity there is. So the closer we all come to like realizing that something is evil, the less we disagree. There are nevertheless certain situations where the public reaction to a murder and its assessment of how evil the crime was depends more than we might care to admit on the characteristics and social status of the victim. I'm not going to say, what are you doing? Did you push the button? Time out. I'm about to take a time out. How <laughs> did it catch you, Jimmy? Nope, no. All right, sorry, everybody, for the hot little break there. My daughter noticed that our microphones were flashing red and green which i've never actually had happen before so i wasn't really sure what that was meaning because i just charged them last night but i think that we have the solution but the problem 
whatever it was is fixed and none of the recording audio should be screwed up at all. So I won't have to apologize for any of that. So we're going back to the fact that there are some crimes that um, our reactions to it depend on the characteristics and social status of the victim, right? And I'm not going to say a whole lot more on this because we should all know that this is just fact. Like these things just happen. For example, if an African-American sex worker is murdered brutally, much of the public and even law enforcement doesn't consider the crime to be very evil. And they even tend to blame the victim because of their own lifestyle choices. While if a middle, middle to upper class white woman is brutally murdered in the same manner while out jogging, the public and law enforcement would be up in arms calling it an evil act. And if you disagree and can't see the truth in that, this podcast is not for you. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Because it's true. Oh. You can, yeah, I mean, anybody who knows anything about true crime knows that that's true. Right? I know. People that are of a lower class, minorities, sex workers, drug users, they are not seen the same as other people. And if they are brutally murdered, their cases are not given the attention necessary. Mm-hmm. Nor are those acts of violence against them considered to be as evil. And that's not right, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Or, or otherwise, I'm going to get upset. So then you may now be asking, what is the point then of breaking up the concept of evil into all these categories in the first place? Making distinct categories rests on the fact that in other areas of human behavior, something useful often emerges from making these distinctions. There are several important questions that might be more easily answered if we take this approach to evil. If, an, if all the individual cases that get labeled evil are lumped together, the origins of the different varieties of the evil behavior become harder to discover. So in other words, if we just lumped all evil together, it's hard to figure out what causes that evil to happen. So we need to make these distinctions. The first step towards answering such questions is to find common features of backgrounds, of behavior, of personality shared by one group of individuals who have committed evil acts, but not in another group that have committed evil acts. So you have to find the similarities and the differences. We start learning then at this point that while creating this scale, the act itself was not the only thing that we need to take into consideration. Many other aspects of the perpetrator and their lives also contribute to what category of evil they might be placed into. It is only when we separate these groups that show these outer differences that we can look for then the inner differences. And by inner differences, I mean the various hereditary, early background, brain structure differences that would not at all be apparent when people behind the evil actions were first identified. And of course, as a psychiatrist, and entering the picture well after there has been the capture and other more pertinent questions in the case have already been answered, what is his interest in this and why? And then that's just it. Why? His interest is answering the question of why. 
which is also my interest, which is why I found this fascinating, which is why I think a lot of you out there would have that same thing as why. So to a prosecutor, to a judge, the question is usually of less interest. The question of why something happens isn't important to them. They, they, it's just, it happened. To the defense attorney, however, the why question is of interest, since the defense will try to show mitigating circumstances. Based on such things as having suffered a grievous loss, being the object of bigotry, or having had a history of terrible abuse or neglect in childhood. Then there is also the very important question of dangerousness. And this is where psychiatry and the law meet and form forensic psychiatry. This is one of the major region, re regions, reasons why the categories were created. To answer the question also in which persons having committed an evil act, does dangerousness remain an issue? In which persons who have committed a violent act can we expect eventual rehabilitation and the reduction of dangerousness? Or the opposite, in which persons who have committed a violent act can we label as habitual offenders who will always pose a threat to society? We can't answer those questions without breaking them up. Stone hopes the scale could someday be used in helping answer this because the scale follows a continuum of the likelihood a killer will kill again. So courts may be able to better weigh the risk posed by releasing a perpetrator. He also discusses how an increased understanding of the causes of evil will affect the justice system. He predicts a day when certain persons can be safely declared rehabilitated and restored to society, and when early signs of violence in children may be corrected before potentially dangerous patterns become entrenched. And we've seen this before in older cases, where the question comes up of, if we had stopped this behavior when they were children, would they have gone on to commit their serial killing crimes? So now that we have a good deal of in-depth background into how Stone got to the finalized scale, this is a probably good, good time to start going over some of the pertinent info about and included in the scale so you have an understanding of the next 22 episodes. <laughs> Keep in mind, however, the gradation scale was built only from published biographies. It represents just a fraction of all the people who have committed a murder. Americans make up 89% of the men and women in the biographies that he has studied. But compared with the actual murders committed in the United States each year, not even one in a thousand achieves the notoriety that leads to having a biography written about them. So for every uh, true crime serial killer biography that's out there, there's 999 other people who have murdered somebody. Yay, America! Yeah. So, there's that. <laughs> so the gradations of evil scale. So the scale is first broken down into like, there's six different sections, and within each of these sections is where these 22 categories fall. And there are some key words used throughout this scale that I feel need to be defined first to avoid any misunderstandings on what is meant. And many of those words are words that we hear and use often, but when asked to define them, it is difficult to do, at least for me. 
Like, have you guys ever had somebody ask you, you know, the definition of a word you use all the time and you know what it means, but you can't actually verbalize what it means? And many of these words are the ones that begin with the uh, begin with psycho, basically. Such as psychopathy, which is the neuropsychiatric disorder marked by deficient emotional responses, lack of empathy, and poor behavioral controls, commonly resulting in persistent antisocial deviance and criminal behavior. Psychopath, a person affected by chronic mental disorder with abnormal or violent social behavior. Psychopathic, affected by or constituting a chronic mental disorder with extreme or violent social behavior. Psychopathic traits. Lesser degree of psychopathy than psychopathic. Psychotic. Relating to or affected with psychosis, which is a severe mental condition in which thought and emotions are so affected that contact with reality is lost. And I will point those out more as we go on. But anyway, stop putting your finger in hot wax. <laughs> your podcast is going to become so weird. Yeah, well, Jill's not sitting over there putting... She's sitting next to a wax warmer and continually sticking her finger in it. And every once in a while, she's like, yeah, it's hot. I'm trying to mix it. So anyway, those were the ones that I know I always get a lot of those ones confused. Like, what is the difference between a psychopath and what is the difference between being psychopathic and what is psychopathy? You know, so those are the terms and the terms uh, psychopathic traits or psychopath occur most in the descriptions of the categories from number nine on. And so I'll talk more about how one would be labeled with those terms when we get there. So, beginning of the scale. Section one is killing in self-defense or justifiable homicide. So, this is the very first category. Justifiable homicide, which is the least malevolent and basically considered not to be evil. And it's those who have killed in self-defense and do not show psychopathic features. So, they don't have extreme or violent social behavior or chronic mental disorders. Section two is impulsive murders in persons without psychopathic features. Category two, jealous lovers who are egocentric, immature people committing crimes of passion, like the catching your husband or wife in bed with somebody else. Category three, willing companions of killers. They are often impulse-ridden and they have some antisocial traits. So those would be the ones that help somebody else. Killing. Category four, killing in self-defense, but with the caveat of being extremely provocative towards the victim. And this is not provocative in like the sexual term, but it means that they cause annoyance, anger, or other strong reactions deliberately in order for them to act in self-defense. So they poke and poke and poke the bear until the bear reacts. And then they kill them and say self-defense, which is worse than obviously actual self-defense. Category five, traumatized, desperate persons who kill relatives or others without and show or without the psychopathic traits and show true remorse. So they've been abused and traumatized by a certain person. 
they don't have psychopathic traits and after the killing is done, they have actual remorse. But they have that, they, they weren't able to have that stop, that break mechanism. Category six, impetuous, which means acting or done quickly and without thought or care, hot-headed murderers. That's section two. Section three, persons with a few or no psychopathic traits, but the murders are more of a severe type. So category seven are highly narcissistic killers who are often possessive, some with a psychopathic core who murder loved ones. Category eight, murders sparked by a smoldering rage, resulting sometimes in a mass murder. That's going to be kind of the one where you see school shootings happen a lot. So they have this anger and this this rage that's just sitting inside of them and it just blows up. That's where you're going to get school shootings. You're going to get mass shootings in workplaces, things like that. Side note here, because most, if not all perpetrators from this point on are either psychopaths or they display psychopathic traits because now we're going to get into that type of stuff. So I'm going to explain to you how someone is actually labeled as a psychopath or having psychopathic traits. Like how did they actually get diagnosed with that? So in order to determine whether or not a person can be labeled as a psychopath, a scale called the psychopathy checklist was created. This checklist consists of 20 items, some dealing with personality, others with behaviors. The maximum score is 40. Anyone scoring 30 or more is considered to be a psychopath. Scores that are in the teens or 20s are said to show psychopathic traits, but not have the full-blown psychopath condition. So to, rem to uh, remind us what that means, a psychopath is a person affected by chronic mental disorder with abnormal or violent social behavior. Shoo. Um, for the purposes of the gradations of evil scale, the most important items are those having to do with personality because they paint a picture of extreme egocentricity or narcissism with ruthless disregard for the rights and feelings of others. Now we're talking about psychopaths here. These personality traits are glib speech, and I had to look up what glib meant because I had no idea. Glib is fluent and voluble, but insincere or shallow. So they're really good at speaking and convincing. Superficial charm, grandiosity, conning or manipulativeness, pathological lying, lack of remorse or guilt, callousness or lack of empathy, and a failure to accept responsibility for one's actions. Some of the behavioral items will include impulsivity, sexual promiscuity, poor behavioral controls, and a par parasitic lifestyle. Some of them is like that i'm not gonna say their name you know them you're related to them you're you're thinking of who i'm thinking of aren't you okay that fits him right there oh yep anyway section four then now we're getting into like the ones that are either having those psychopathic traits or are psychopaths so they're psychopathic Features are marked and murders show malice aforethought. So that means that it's premeditated. Mm -hmm. So category nine, jealous lovers with strong psychopathic traits or full-blown psychopathy. 
Category 10, killers of people that are in the way, including witnesses, extreme egocentricity, but they're not fully psychotic. So those are people, I'm killing people who are in the way are like, I have to get rid of this person because of this, that, or another thing, including somebody who might witness the crime. (laughs) Category 11, killers of people in the way, but are fully psychopathic. Category 12, power-hungry psychopaths who murder when cornered. So those are the ones that, like, they're power-hungry, they probably lie a bunch to make themselves sound really, like, important, and then they're back into a corner where their lies are kind of probably being discovered, and that causes them to kill. Category 13, inadequate, rageful psychopaths, some committing multiple murders. These are the ones that feel like They've been inadequate their whole lives. They feel less than, and they take it out on other people. Category 14, ruthlessly self-centered psychopath schemers. This would be like ones that try to kill their parents early. Kill their parents early. <laughs> like, like there's a good time to kill your parents. Who kill their parents so they are able to get their inheritance when they want it. By the way, that never... You don't get away with that, so please don't try that. You always get caught. Section 5. Spree or multiple murderers. Psychopathy is apparent. Category 15. Psychopathic, cold-blooded, spree or multiple murders. And spree killers are the ones that they just go on this rampage of killing. And they do not stop until they are caught. They will continue to kill. And they will just increase... The usually it will increase like with intensity, with uh, how often, etc., and they don't stop unless they're caught. Spree killers are scary. Uh, category 16 psychopathic persons committing multiple vicious acts, including murder. Um, so that's section five. And here's a note before moving into our last section here. So some of the worst offenders. Those whose actions prompt the word evil most quickly also show sadistic traits. The essence of sadism is achieving enjoyment and hurting others. Two other main qualities of sadism are humiliation and control, each carried to an extreme. However, a person can be psychopathic without being sadistic. And, gotta throw this in here, also this does not mean those who practice BDSM are murderers or evil people. For those who do not know... BDSM stands for bondage, discipline, sadism, and masochism. Can't say the word masochism. Yeah, I'm sorry. I always butcher that word. And is defined mainly as sexual activity involving such practices as the use of physical restraints, the granting and relinquishing of control, and the infliction of pain. That's a very condensed definition of what the BDSM lifestyle and community is all about. But the main thing to remember and keep in mind is that when people participate in BDSM, it is between consensual adults who often have pre-established rules, safe words, etc. in place. Again, those who participate in BDSM are not evil. They are not murderers. Okay, I can't say that because they're they're not intent. You know what I mean? They're not murderers. And many times outside of when they are engaging in those activities. So when they're not engaging in those activities, they're very nonviolent people. So I have to throw that in there because a lot of people will sit there and think the BDSM community, they take pleasure in pain and they're evil. 
No, that's that's not how it is. It's between two consensual adults, and they have safe words. They have talked about it. We're not going to put that in there. I don't want to hear anybody saying that they're evil. Period. End story. Section so section six, which are serial killers, torturers, and sadists. Category seventeen: sexually perverse serial killers. They kill to hide evidence, so they kill the person they have sexually assaulted, but there's no torture involved. Category eighteen: torture murderers. Though the torture element is not prolonged. So they torture and murder, but they don't torture for an extended period of time. Category 19, psychopaths driven to terrorism. Now you have to remember, when we think of terrorism, especially here in the United States, we think of like bombing, that type of stuff. Keep in mind that terrorism is actually just the unlawful use of violence and intimidation. So a person can wage basically be a terrorist to somebody else. It doesn't necessarily mean what comes to our mind first off. Um, drive So psychopaths drive to terrorism subjugation, which is the action of bringing someone or something under domination or control, rape, etc., but they do fall short of murder. So this is one of the only categories in here that does not necessarily end murder. But because of the impact and the torture that is involved, it is considered more evil than some of the ones that are murder. Category 20, torture murderers, but in persons with distinct psychosis, such as schizophrenia. So these are ones where their act is evil, but they're not necessarily evil because they've got something like schizophrenia. Category 21, psychopaths committing extreme torture, but not known to have killed and completely in touch with reality. Now, a lot of these ones, when I say not known to have killed, there's always, or usually the, um, I can't think of the word now. We assume that they have killed, but there is no proof that they have killed, unfortunately. And these are the ones who commit extreme torture, but are completely in touch with reality. They know exactly what they're doing. That's pretty easy. And last, category 22, psychopathic torture murderers who torture as their primary motive. Like, that is what they're all about, is just torturing people. So there's your, there's your 22. That's 22 levels of, of evil there for you. Um, so hopefully there, you have a better understanding of the background of how this scale came to be, what the contents of it of, is, you know, why it can be useful, hopefully, someday in the court system in catching this stuff before it becomes violent. And the rest of this series then will be episodes devoted to a telling of a case in each category. Example, the next episode I will be covering a case that would be considered a category one or justifiable homicide. The next one will be category two, jealous lovers, egocentric, immature people, committing crimes of passion, so on and so forth. Whew. I know that was a lot of information, guys. Um, like I said, I'll put in the show notes the name of the book I'm using and a couple of the websites. And I will also post the, the charts of the actual scale of where it defines the different evils. Um, so you kind of know what's coming there. 
feel like I had an end to this somewhere. I forget how I end my show. How do I end it? How do I end this? It's been so long, I don't remember. Um, anyone has any questions, comments? I'd say concerns, but like all of this should be concerning to everyone. Uh, <laughs> you, you can email me at nocturnaldistractions at gmail.com. I am on Instagram at nocturnal distractions podcast please uh, send me a dm i check instagram probably more often than anything else i do have a twitter it is podcast podcast underscore nocturne i don't check that one as much just throwing that one out there and there is also in the show notes i will have a link it'll probably be called like a link to all the links so if you click on that it's going to take you to a page that has every single listening platform that I am available to listen on. It's going to have a link to our website, our Facebook group, our my website, Facebook group, the donation page, buy me a coffee, my Patreon page. I think all the, all the social stuff is on there. Oh, case request form. So if any of you guys look at this, this chart, of these different uh, categories of evil and you think to yourself, I have this case that would be perfect to do for this particular level or this particular category, send it my way. Cause otherwise I'm going to have to try to figure out 22 cases that fit these categories, <laughs> which uh, some of them might, are going to be easier than others. So if you do have suggestions on those, <laughs> no, you know, send them my way. Um, go ahead. If you could rate me, Give me five stars if you would like to on Spotify. That'd be great. Five stars on Apple Podcast and a written review would be nice. Like I've got, I think like 11 or 12 five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. But I like to see written comments so I know what people are thinking about things. And I think those are the only two platforms you can actually rate anything on. Which is also why I'd like to hear from you guys. But I am glad to be back after this month hiatus. And I'm excited for this series. And I hope you guys are too. And I'm glad my daughter was here even though... What? <laughs> I don't get, well, it's it's still going up and down on there, so... Oh. Well, I'm not keep sure going. what the deal is. Well, keep talking. I'm going to keep talking. I'm glad my daughter was able to join me, even though she didn't say diddly squat. <laughs> Except giggling every once in a while. I'll have to bring her in on one of the cases so I can get more reactions, like when I said the lady skinned her boyfriend. Well, at least I got your face to do something. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I don't want to do it. It's embarrassing. I'm like, it's not a video. Can I just sit there? Yeah. But I wanted her to know the process. She's like, I don't care, Mom. I don't care. And then I think she was embarrassed because... I don't even know why. I'm like, uh, who do you know that actually listens to this? And like, Nobody? No one. I'm going to send it to your boyfriend's mom. Mm, my <laughs> God. That would be so bad. Look at that. 
So are you holding my stuff? My dog's here with us. She's been sleeping. Yeah, she's been sleeping the whole time. Yeah. All right, all right, guys. Um, I hope you all have a very good night. And I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.